to action's antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you selling for less. Today, we're going to talk about intellectual property. It's a, it's a topic I think that a lot of people either overlook or don't completely understand because it is a bit nebulous. Not everyone really understands when you come up with an idea or when you come up with a process, a product, even a logo or a company name, what it means to have that intellectual property, how that resonates with your business, and uh, what you need to do to kind of protect that for your business to operate properly. My guest today is all about intellectual property. Erin uh, Austin, her business is called Think Beyond IP, and she helps anyone looking to grow their business to understand and, and navigate the world of intellectual property. And she also has a, a podcast called Hourly to Exit. Erin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. Definitely. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I've wanted to talk with people about intellectual property for for quite a while because it is something that people they either overlook or don't know how to wrap their heads around. What does intellectual property mean at its most basic level? Great. So first I'm going to do my lawyer thing and I'm just yep. going to say that what we're going to talk about today is just information. There's nuance to everything. Even if we talk about some examples, there's always going to be something that's different for everybody. So uh, we're talking in generalities. And if you do have specific questions, then you do need to consult with your own lawyer. Okay. With that out of the way. Thank, thanks for the, thanks so. for the caveat. There's no one formula. You can just say A plus B equals C. It's, it's always going to be something about your situation, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Intellectual property. So as you mentioned, there are four categories, copyright, trademarks, trade secrets, and patents. I will just say right off the top, patents is a very specific area of the law. I do not practice in it. We all are familiar with patents, probably, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, obviously they get patents on their medications and people who create inventions get patents on their inventions. I work with people in the expertise space mm -hmm. and most of what they're Intellectual property would fall into the first three buckets, copyrights, trademarks, and trade secrets. Copyrights are things that are original and that have been put down in some concrete form, which also could be digital. Mm -hmm. So when you write something down, when you paint a painting, when you take a photograph, when you shoot a film, when you create blueprints, those original expressions, once you put them down in whatever the concrete form is, the copyright, meaning the exclusive right to make copies, distribute, create derivatives of that material belongs to the copyright owner. Trademarks denote the origin of a good or service. So whenever you see the trademarked golden arches of McDonald's, you know that's a McDonald's. Whenever you see the trademarked brown color of a UPS truck, you know it's a UPS truck. Whenever you see uh, the swoosh of a Nike logo, you know it's a Nike logo product, right? Those can be words, images, colors, even sounds. You know, I think like NBC, like, dude, dude, I don't think they even use it anymore. I haven't watched television yeah. in so long. <laughs> I'm like just aging myself right now. <laughs> yeah, we I all think. remember that. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, whatever it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so that denotes like, okay, I'm on NBC because I hear, you know, and then trade secrets 
unlike copyrights and trademarks, which you do register, trade secrets have their value because you keep them confidential. And so you do that by using your confidentiality agreements, either separate agreements or in your services agreements, and that you share it only on a case-by-case basis. And, uh, you know, examples of those would be the Coca-Cola formula, the KFC uh, recipe, things that if other people learn about them, then the value of them immediately drops significantly. And uh, so those would be trade secrets. So with a trade secret, is this a case where if you're forming a partnership, you need to sign a non-disclosure agreement about it? Or does the trade secret registration already cover the fact that whoever is told the formula for Coca-Cola or the formula for how many onions you put on a McDonald's burger or whatever already should know that they can't share just by virtue of the fact that there is a trade secret registered associated with it. Yeah. So first trade secrets are the only form of intellectual property that you do not register because all registrations are public. So when you register your book, when the copyright office, you submit a sample of it. So it's all there. When you register your trademark, it's in the trademark office. So it's right there. When you register a patent, you register the way to make it, right? Mm-hmm. So those things are publicly known. So if it's a trade secret that you don't want anyone to know, because I mean, at the end of the day, like let's just take the Coca-Cola formula, which is a trade secret. You know, I, I have no idea what it is, but I'm guessing that if we knew the exact combination of materials, like any of us could do it. Yeah, you so could just not make it that complicated. I'm guessing it's not that complicated, but it's just that they've perfected it and it's, you know, unique to them. And so the value is making sure that people can't copy it in order to, to protect that trade secret. Yes, you absolutely have to protect that by the way you keep it confidential through confidentiality agreements and through keeping it locked up and disclosing it only for the people who absolutely positively have to. So these copyrights and trademarks are things that you register. And when you register it with the public domain, you can have your legal protection around people copying it based on that registration. Whereas a trade secret is something that you need to protect yourself through non-disclosure agreements or whichever other forms of privacy policies. And I'm I'm thinking about anyone that's ever had a job where the first three weeks at work is all these like data security videos about how like, like we don't even log on without a VPN to an unsecure network because someone might come in and steal that information. Absolutely. Trade secret is really, it's in your own hands almost completely. Whereas the other ones, it seems like, there is a legal entity that knows my example I often give is that there was one time I was going on a ski trip and I tried to make t-shirts that said YOLO on it. And just to find out that that trademark had been claimed by Young Money Entertainment, aka Drake, which Ah, threw me for a loop. I was like, oh my gosh, like people were saying YOLO before that song even came out. But Uh I guess they were the first ones to trademark it. And 
and claim that intellectual <laughs> property, right? Because <laughs> someone comes up with something, you're talking with your friends and you come up with like a clever phrase. Your first thought is not, oh, how do I trademark this phrase? How do I copyright whatever I did? Your first thought was, oh, I'm funny. I'm more popular now and blah, blah, blah. And that's it. Right, right. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So yeah, so I'm going to try to kind of back up to the first thing you said, which was regarding when you register trademarks and copyrights, they are publicly disclosed, but they aren't in the public domain. And I'm going to make the Mm, distinction because public domain basically means that there is not protections with respect to use of it. If I record Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, Symphony. (laughs) thank you, it is in the public domain. I don't have to pay Beethoven's heirs in order to use it right? Because it's passed into the public domain. Yeah. That's 75 years. I think it is, right? Yeah. I mean, it keeps changing because Hollywood keeps, you know, pushing it out there. Yeah. Mickey Mouse, (laughs) Mickey can't let Mickey Mouse go into the public domain. (laughs) And I think he's a hundred years old now, I think. So they keep, yeah, they keep pushing it to (laughs) Disney's whatever, but, but yeah, so public registration, publicly (laughs) registered means that everyone knows that this is your intellectual property the public domain is what it enters when it theoretically reaches that point, like happy birthday, right? Like you don't have to pay the person who wrote that song in 18, whatever, every time. I, you, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's true. I, I don't oh, wow. heard that, but oh, wow. know, I don't know how old it is. Honestly, I don't know if it's that old, but uh, I, cause I feel like there's something that people commonly use that we're all shocked to find out that it's not in the public domain because we all just use it. And it might be mm. happy birthday, but I'm just not sure. But, <laughs> uh, so I, I'm, don't, it yeah. didn't come from me that happy birthday is <laughs> in the public domain. Just saying. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um. <laughs> so yes, it is in your control to make sure you keep that trade secret. Why it's intellectual property is because the intellectual property laws protect and give a remedy in the event of an infringement. So if someone copies, you know, your book and sells it under their name, then you have a remedy under intellectual property laws to sue them and get damages. If someone steals your trademark and starts, you know, selling, you know, the Louis Vuitton bags that, you know, on the corner using your trademark, then you have a remedy. Or if someone, you know, steals your trade secrets and uses them, then you have a remedy under intellectual property law. I guess the first step, for anyone thinking about this topic is to understand what exactly is their intellectual property, whatever is the product you built, whatever is the, you know, logos, everything else. Um, What's a good way to kind of wrap your head around when you're looking around, because there's a lot of processes that are commonly used, such as agile developments, the first thing that comes to mind. So many tech companies right now are using the framework of agile development in many different ways, probably isn't their intellectual property, given that most people just either took it from another job or read it in a book or something like that. So what do you think people should be thinking about when they're thinking about, okay, what qualifies as my intellectual property? Well, it has to be original with you. And Mm. so just a few rules about intellectual property ownership. We're going to talk about copyrights here. Aaron Austin Law, you know, my firm, Think Beyond IP, the brand that I do this work under, it says that, you know, if you have something to Think Beyond IP, Aaron Austin created it or produced it or delivered it. I do not have a trademark, by the way, in it. 
we want to check to make sure that that is available so that there'd be no conflict. So if you're about to start a new business or offer a new product, then you do want to, to, and and it's going to be, you know, assuming it's going to be pretty valuable. You do want to make sure before you start spending a lot of money, you're going to invest a lot of money in a brand. Then you want to make sure that it's clear. So you don't have to go back and change it later, but I'm going to assume we only have a few of those. You know, I've seen we don't have like just trademarks laying around everywhere, right? Yeah, so that's like, going to be your business name and some logo. And that's going to kind of be it. Maybe the name of a service, right? So for your copyrights, though, I like to say that intellectual property is everywhere. I mean, think about it. Every time you, you know, write a blog post, every time you design a website for a client, every time you create a training for a client, Every time you hire someone to do graphics for your website, intellectual property is flowing in and out of our businesses every day. And I know this is an old number, but at some point, I want to say 10 years ago, the market value in the United States, like 70% of it is intellectual property. Like That's where mm-hmm. like, the value is now. And so when we are service-based businesses, which is who I primarily work with the service-based businesses, you know, like designers and consultants and coaches and trainers, that their intellectual property is being created all the time, whenever they're working for their clients, whenever they are a client. And I want people to think about that intellectual property doesn't happen at some stage. Like, oh, I've been in business for five years. Now I've got IP. You have IP the second you start creating anything. The way we make sure that we own it is one, the owner is the human being who created it. You know, I have a PLLC. I also have an employee. If I create something, I own it because I'm an employee of my business. But let's say I have a contractor who creates something. So they're not my W-2 employee. That person, that human being owns it. Even if I told them exactly what to do, even if I paid them for it, they own it unless there's a contract in place that says I get the rights to it or Mm -hmm. if they are my W-2 employee. So those are the only exceptions where the human who created something doesn't own it, which is why it's so important to be mindful of where those rights are. Is the person who's working for you, a W-2 employee. If not, then you better have a contract in place if you want to own it. If you don't have a contract in place, the human who created it is the owner of that intellectual property. The person who created it is the owner of it by default. And it's an interesting discussion about the difference between a W-2 and a contract employee, because like we've all seen jobs somewhere where you have employees and then you have like these consultants that come in or these contractors come in from a consulting firm and most people think about, okay, contractors, consultants, they're people you can let go of a lot easier and employees is a lot more process, but also that these contractors, they own their intellectual property of anything created at work versus an employee. If you're an employee of a company, the intellectual property of anything you do at work is the property of that corporation. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Yes. So when you're in a W-2 employee, the creator is legally the employer. The conversation about whether or not a contractor is just easier to get rid of. And that's a 
separate issue um, about whether or not we're using contractors appropriately. Are they really employees or are they really contractors? That's a whole kind of employment law issue. But yes, but we, and that's by state too, obviously, you know, California has some employee favorable provisions, you know, laws. So you definitely want to be mindful of that. But yeah, so if you're using contractors, thinking that they're easy to let go of employees, (laughs) you may get, have some issues with ownership of the IP that they're creating because they really should be treating them arm's length with with contracts. That's why they're contractors. (laughs) Exactly. And so the other thing is that when someone protects the IP, obviously, you know, you have the publicly registered trademark, patent, or copyright. But when no action is done, is it then the default outside of these contracts that the person who created it is the one who owns the intellectual property. And in that case, does it oftentimes become some of these legal messes that you oftentimes see in the news about like, oh, well, who was the one that actually created this? I have a claim from 1984. Well, I have a claim from 1983. Look at my journal. And some of these things that you sometimes see becoming big deals if these things actually become popular products or innovations. Usually, if there's a claim like that, someone is claiming someone who stole my IP, right? They say that they're no original idea. And so someone's written a screenplay. This is what, you know, I've seen a lot. Someone's written a screenplay. They know somebody at, you know, like a cousin who's at, you know, some studio, whatever they send it to them. And then lo and behold, that studio comes out with a film that has a similar storyline, you know, because there's like 10 of them, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, (laughs) we can all think of like two films we know where like, yeah, that was the same story as this film before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so then, you know, Joe screenwriter claims that the studio stole his screenplay somehow. That is a breach issue. You know, the question would be, can you show that the studio really had access to your screenplay? Probably cousin had no ability to get it to anybody who could have read it, right? Almost every studio that I'm aware of has very strict policies about submission of screenplays. Like they will not take a screenplay that it doesn't come from a lawyer or an agent, period. They won't take brinks on some someone's cousin, right? Otherwise, there'd be too many screenplays to look through because... <laughs> so right, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. there's no shortage of screenplays, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they don't need your screenplay. And then did Joe Screenwriter even register in the copyright office or has it just been sitting in his drawer in his computer? Is there any reason to believe that anyone had access to it? The fact that he, Joe Screenwriter, didn't register it wouldn't per se mean that he couldn't have a claim because if, in fact, you know... He sent it to his cousin and his cousin is the head of development at said film studio, then maybe they really did steal it. And and the fact that he hasn't registered it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a claim. He would need to register it to, to sue them. It's not a matter of who registered it first, because unlike trademark, I would have to say this, like trademark, it's first to file, right? So YOLO, you know. They got there first, you know, you're out, right? Whereas if I write my screenplay, I don't register in the copyright office, but I wrote it and I sent it all over town and somebody steals it. The fact that they steal it and then copyright theirs before me doesn't mean that they get ahead of me, right? 
I mean, it complicates things. It'd be much better if you copyrighted it. So that's why you wouldn't do it. But it doesn't mean that you're out of luck. Well, that's interesting because so trademark, obviously, you mentioned are, you know, tend to be words like YOLO or logos like the Nike swoosh colors and pictures like the UPS truck, things like that. Whereas, you know, copyrights are if you create videos for a course that you're designing online, that would fall into the copyright range. And there's a little bit of difference so when, when it comes to the copyright law, it seems like to overcome the burden of proof that something was stolen, it's really not about who came up with the idea first, but whether or not the person that you're saying stole the idea had reasonable access or exposure to that to believe like, okay, you know, I told you this, and then you started like implementing the idea. And this is where it's really messy. So I'm guessing when it comes to copyright, whatever material you put together, even the podcast that we record, generate, and publish, that the best thing to do is to copyright it as soon as it happens or, you know, have our companies. I know, um, you know, some of the podcast production companies I work with, as well as some of the blog sites a lot of people work with, have a feature in those particular services that protects that intellectual property through a copyright. Interesting. So for our podcasts, yes, you can register them and you can even, you know, I was just looking at this this morning, absolutely, actually, about, you know, doing group registrations of your podcasts. But because we publish our podcasts and therefore they're publicly available, let's say you don't register your podcast, mm-hmm. but you publish it. And so it's documented, we know, when, when you uh, published it, um, when it was distributed. Uh, and then someone just steals it and slaps their own cover art on it and puts a new intro on it and says it's that. You would not lose your protection just because you had not registered it at the right office. That is really interesting. And now you mentioned these patents being pretty expensive. And I think I've heard stories about several to dozens of thousands of dollars to register a patent. What is the cost of a copyright or a trademark being registered? Just go to the copyright website that you can do everything online, like for a single, as I'm recalling, or you have an article you want to register. I think it's 45 bucks and you can do bundles of them. So there's like a whole schedule of fees on the copyright, but but it's not hundreds or thousands of dollars, right? It's, you know, a couple hundred maybe, you know. For trademarks, I really do not believe that it is a DIY process. I mean, it is, you know, there is a whole analysis of your trademark by the trademark office. And they have a bunch of lawyers there who are going to look at your registration, you know, look at your mark, look at the industry that it's in. There's categories of uses, you know, like, is it for education or is it for manufacturing or is it for real estate? Right. And they're going to look to see what the the possibility of it being confusing with a currently registered trademark. And they may have questions. They may reject it. This is something that's going to be your brand. This is going to be you know very yeah. valuable for you. So to invest in a trademark lawyer to help you with that process, I think is well worth it. And so there are providers that are online who can do it for like one registration, I think as low as like $1,500. 
if I'm remembering correctly, you know, most of you're going like to a lawyer at a law firm and they'd be like $3,500. And that will include, you know, kind of guarantees like, okay, if it gets kicked back, then I'll keep working with you until we get it, you know, get it, get it registered. So, and the other thing about, you know, trademarks is that you also have to be tracking them. You know, they have to be renewed every five years. You have to show that you're still using them. You have to be monitoring them to see if anyone else is using them. It's not just not a one and done thing. So just another benefit of using someone who who's is what they do all day, every day is is having a system for this. Well, and it seems like two different issues because copyright is like the content that you create every day. So there's a much higher volume and you need it to be cheaper. Whereas like you said, a trademark could be your your brand or images. And I just imagine that movie coming to America where there's that McDowell's restaurant that <laughs> they're always trying to figure out, okay, did they really copy the McDonald's logo? Because it's like the golden arches, but like slightly curved a little bit more or something, <laughs> something like yeah. that. And that's a situation where I imagine it would take some of these attorneys to really kind of figure out like, okay, they're called McDowell's instead of McDonald's, the still mm-hmm. arches, but they're curved a little bit more. They have the big Mick and the only difference is yeah. that the buns don't have sesame seeds. Like, you right, know, right. Kind of like, and I envision that some that gray area comes up a lot more than, than, than people think with similar, yeah. names, similar ideas. Yeah. And as I understand it, it's getting harder and harder to get things approved than it used to be like talking about being Hollywood. I mean, that's not a gray area, what you just described. That would be a no way you stop, you know, don't fast go, don't get, you know, you know, cause there are things called, I think they're called super trademarks, you know, and McDonald's oh, wow. Coca-Cola, like, they're, you know, so you can't even go near, don't even play around with those. Cause they're just going to get kicked out. Forget about it. You know, because, you know, again, like if we go to the YOLO, I'm going to assume YOLO is not a supermarket. So YOLO, I'm going to assume that the category that it's trademarked in is maybe music or I don't know, maybe apparel. I don't know, whatever it might be. And so, but I can do YOLO if I wanted to call my law firm YOLO. I'm betting that there's no conflict between YOLO law services and YOLO, you know, hip hop or whatever it is, right? Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but for super brands, like, you know, Coca-Cola doesn't have a law firm, but I could not call my law firm Coca-Cola law firm no matter what. It doesn't matter if they are never, ever, ever going to provide legal services, that those super brands, you can't, you just can't. So it feels like the first step in any trademarking, which is similar to the first step in, in creating a name of a business, is to do a search and figure out if that's already the name of a business, because otherwise it could, you know, come back and bite you, right? Like, you know, whatever you, whatever you decide to name it, even if it's an idea that you just came up with in your head, independent of any awareness of this other firm with the same name, if they have it trademarked, they could legally say, you know, because you mentioned trademarks are the ones that really are first come first serve on like mm-hmm. copyright. So if it already exists, if, right. you know, right. someone yeah, goes and, that. And this is, we're going a teeny bit in the weeds. So I'm going to do it only because it just came up with a local restaurant. So I'm just yeah. thinking about this right now is that a restaurant I'm in the uh, Washington DC area and they named the restaurant born and raised. Now it's a local restaurant, but the chef has kind of a national profile. He was on top chef, right? Okay. So yeah. he has a little, so he may want to expand that restaurant to other places. And then they found out, Oh, there is this 
chain of restaurants that's in one state, I can't remember what state it is, but just in that one state, this chain of restaurants that has the same name. And so they're like, you know what? Let's just, before we start building this thing, let's just change the name now. So that if it comes down the line, that we're just not going to have any issues. And that's, you know, just uh, also something to, to think about if you want to have a national profile with, with what you're doing. Because mm. you can have just a state trademark. That's another reason to use a lawyer because you, there could be someone has a, a trademark in their state because I'm a restaurant. I have no intention of ever leaving my state or having a national profile. So I just get state trademark protection. And so I don't show up in the federal trademark registry, right? But now, you know, I come along and I do want to do something with a national profile. So I actually kind of need to check all the state databases too. With these trademarks, there's enough like these like smaller complications between a trademark and a super trademark, between a trademark with a state, with a national level, and even other countries, if you want to go global, that it's worthwhile to like get an attorney, get someone who's well-seasoned in all the specifics, all the details in that. There's a good chance to ask you if anyone here is interested in talking to you about Think Beyond IP, think about the service that you provide anyone listening. Uh, what would be the best way anyone could get a hold of you? Oh, well, you can find me in a couple of places. Uh, one, I do have a podcast called Hourly to Exit, and you can find it, I'm sure, where, where you find this podcast. Yep. And, uh, and also my website is thinkbeyondip.com. And there uh, you can sign up for my newsletter, which comes out weekly. And we talk about building a business from kind of that unscalable hourly model to one that uh, that's scalable, where the business is, has some independence from the owner, and that hopefully you'll be able to sell it someday. Oh, so yeah, bringing that business to the next level, obviously you're actually starting to make like the money you want to make. And then of course, eventually the lifestyle that you want to achieve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you want to get to the point where you are decoupling your income from your time because yeah. Right. Aaron, what inspired you to start Think Beyond IP? What brought you to like, this is the business I want to put together? Yeah. Well, you know, I spent a career, you know, working with very large corporations. Uh, Really, it was a time of life where we're thinking about, you know, how can I work with a group of people who can help me achieve like my goal to make an impact? And do I think, believe the same things that I believe and and want to see the same changes that I'd love, love to see made. How do I use my expertise to do that, you know, without yeah. completely shifting gears? And so when I thought about that, I thought about, you know, other service-based businesses like me, in particular, women-owned ones, mm-hmm. that do, how do I make sure they understand the value in their businesses? You know, a lot of us, we start our expertise-based businesses, you know, for lifestyle reasons, you know, maybe we're raising kids or things like that. And then the, over the years they grow and they grow, but we're not really capturing, we're not creating assets. We're not truly capturing the value because they're good income earners, right? They generate income, but are we building assets that's so that when we're ready to move on to the next challenge or to retire, that we have something that we can sell and therefore something that is a wealth builder. And so that is my mission to help, you know, service-based businesses, expertise-based businesses understand the real value in their businesses so that, you know, if they want to sell them someday that they can capture that value. 
So it sounds like what you see is a lot of people leaving chips on the table for lack of a better way to put it, and that they created something really good, but they just don't know how to turn it into an asset more than just, I built myself a job, essentially. Absolutely. Many service-based providers don't even think in terms of assets. I mean, they think assets are, you know, their desktop or, you know, and uh, and things like that. They don't think about IP. I mean, I think you, at the beginning of this, we talked about how people have a hard time wrapping their head around IP. And I think it's because there is this perception that IP is a product, like it is software or it is, you know, a pharmaceutical or it is a computer. And, but it is that bundle of rights that are, are things that you created. And many, most times those things are intangibles, like the training that we've created, like our proprietary process that we use to provide value to our clients. And the opportunity there is to create an asset that can be, you know, licensed instead of delivered in person, that you can train other people to deliver so you can expand and get your expertise out there without you having to work more. Yes, it could be a book. Yes, it could be a course too. But there are multiple ways to harness that intellectual property into a resource or a product that can generate revenue without you providing in-person services. Well, and to get a little bit deeper, it sounds like this is a whole new way of thinking about what makes you valuable as a person. Anyone listening out there, it's like a whole way of envisioning this is your value. This is the value that you're bringing to the world. And this is why what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're saying, what you're providing, what service, how you're serving other people is valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I, cause I definitely want people to, to not think that their value is just in the time spent, right. In the transformation they're providing to their clients. And there's multiple ways to do that can be through in-person services, but it can also be through sharing your expertise through these other ways. Well, that's amazing because I've uh, for a long time said that one of the things that happened when we mostly left the assembly line, the industrial world into the service sector economy is that the value of your work is no longer perfectly correlated with the amount of time you put into it the way it was on the assembly line and the work culture that we developed for most of the second half of the 20th century was based on this assembly line idea that this many hours meant this many units produced or this many units produced by your thing. But now we've seen in the service sector, a lot of people spend a lot of time on things that are not very valuable and then quickly produce something really valuable in only a few hours worth of work. This time value thing becomes very muddled and I'm happy to see us kind of rethinking that and thinking of our value in a completely different way. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. Like the better you are at something, the more expert you are at something, the more quickly you can provide value to your client. That's worth less. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's worth more. (laughs) And so, so yeah, so that's why, you know, hourly is not, you know, billing our time punishes the expert. Yeah. Yes. 
And then you also talk about particularly working with uh, women-owned businesses. This kind of framework, this frame of mind, something that women oftentimes experience more challenges with, or is there some external factors that make it more challenging? Yeah. Well, I, I do believe, and this is a generalization, that women have a desire generally to over deliver, you know, under promise mm-hmm. and over deliver. And I believe that if you have delivered the value, the transformation that the client has asked for, then that is the value. There's no over delivery and therefore being undercompensated. So when we're thinking in terms of what's the transformation, what's the value to the client, then we are truly valuing ourselves. We're getting out of the kind of hourly, I am an external pair of hands kind of mentality and that I am the expert who can deliver this value to you. And so when I work with women, there is some of that mindset stuff, but more of it is making sure that they think about building a business that is separate from them in a way that feels more comfortable. Like, because, mm-hmm. you know, the client just wants to deal with me. Well, the client wants the transformation and that could be with you or it could be with a team member, could be another way. And so get the comfort that there are multiple ways that doesn't involve you personally delivering the services. And also when you're building that and that building a business that you can sell someday isn't some sort of betrayal, you know? It's not a betrayal. Like, let's say you have a team. Like, if you build a business that can go on after you are ready for something else, then you get to make sure that your clients continue to be taken care of, that your employees continue to be taken care of, that whatever value that you've been bringing to the world continues to go without you. And I make the analogy to raise children, right? You expect them to go off and go on and be independent from you. Hopefully. And your business should be the same way. It should grow up and become independent from you. Like that to me is success, right? So Yeah. And I also love how in the beginning, we talked about some of these uh, musical pieces, whether it be Happy Birthday or Beethoven's Fifth uh, Symphony, 200 and change years later that's still a valuable piece of musical art. Like the value of it is there. And that's similar to like the value of a, of a home or the value of a farm or a piece of property. Right. And so kind of um, there's an element of it, I'm guessing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong of thinking about it in terms of like, okay, your intellectual property is a lot like these other things that we refer to as assets, that their value is still there until something else comes in and makes it less popular or le- or more obsolete or something else in like the general process of you know human progress and evolution. Intellectual property is absolutely an asset and it's called an intangible one, right? But um but you can transfer it. So it's something that can be owned and can be sold and that makes it an asset. Unlike our services like we can't only as an employee can we kind of sell like it has to be us right it can't it can't be transferred separately from us our services but intellectual property can be transferred separately from us so absolutely and so yes and it continues to have value even when you sell it to the next owner it continues to have value 
It has value if you are lending it to somebody else to use in the, in the, in the form of a license. And so if we use the real estate analogy, you know, you can either sell your property or you can rent it. Right. And, uh, and can retain ownership of it and just rent it. Right. So there's multiple ways to continue to get value from it. Yeah. And profit from it. Uh, one final thing I wanted to ask you, because this podcast, you know, in my tagline, we talk about mindset and the mindset that keeps you selling for less. And one thing I'm wondering is, is that, is this understanding of our value, understanding that like what's coming up inside our brain has value and there's obviously the legal ways to protect it that you work on, but this understanding of value, is this a necessary transformation in mindset, in your view, to having someone accomplish eventually what you know you and I are both wanting to help people do, which is accomplish the lifestyle that they really want. Yeah, I think it is a mindset issue. And maybe it's an education, one part education, one part mindset, but really for people to not be afraid of intellectual property, because it's at it's, you know, I'm trying to think of an analogy of something that's, you know, you're dealing with it every day anyway. You just don't realize it. So it's not as mysterious as you think it is because it's what you do all the time and you know getting comfortable with contracts contracts don't have to be you know intimidating depending on who your clients may be if you're you have fortune 500 clients they may send you you know 50 page contracts right and and so that that will happen but also you can have your own version of contracts that are fairly simple that everyone can understand and think of those contracts as your friends because they're basically like um, manuals for how you guys are going to work together, right? So that there are no surprises and there's a way to resolve any issues, you know, when things are due, you know, what you're going to get paid and when, like, those are good things to have, right? And so I want people to think of contracts as your friends. The broad message is don't fear the trademark, don't fear the contract, don't fear the copyright, you know, don't fear all those things. And yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it is something that we deal with every day and not think of. And, in, you know, in both the town you live in and the town I live in, I'd say the analogy is air pollution. I mean, we deal with it every day, but we don't really think about it, or most people don't want to think about it, even though I have met a few people that think about it quite a bit, <laughs> but most people just, just don't want to. And of course, maybe bad analogy because the contract is your friend and and air pollution is kind of never your friend in a way. (laughs) It doesn't protect you from anything. It's not like, oh, yeah. Yeah. There's maybe sunscreen. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Something like that. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes. I wish you the best. I love your mission of helping people get to the lifestyle they really want from what they're really creating, understanding the real value of kind of what's going on inside your brain. And I don't have video with this podcast, but I keep pointing to my brain on this because that's like kind of the, the true origin point that that has value, understanding the value that that has. And, you know, understanding that that's like what makes you worth something. And that that is something that could create value beyond your generation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you for having me. It's been a job. Definitely. I would like to thank everybody out there listening as well, just by listening to podcasts like this and trying to take some of these ideas, these factors into consideration, such as when to think about your intellectual property, you're taking the steps you need to get to the right mindset, to get to the right lifestyle, to get to the place where you really want to be in life. So 
I want to give you all a little bit of congratulations for that and encourage you to tune into more um, episodes of my podcast. Check out Aaron's podcast uh, from hourly to exit. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. And um, yeah, have a great day and keep keep pushing and recognize that your dreams are valid and your ideas, your creation, things you put together have value. Thank you. Thank you.